According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, once again, as we return to our Life of Christ series. John 14, we're dealing with verses 15 through 24 at the moment. Point five in the outline. Point five in the outline. The church's greater work requires Trinitarian abiding love. The church's greater works requires Trinitarian abiding love. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Father, we ask for your hand a blessing upon our time of study today, asking, Father, that you would set aside distractions. Hedge us about, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. John chapter 14. We've seen so far in this uh, section here, some of the most important things that the church needs. This is very transitional. This is very uh, uh, revolutionary. An Old Testament believer would be clueless related to almost everything of what the Lord's talking about here in these chapters, uh, starting with the rapture doctrine under point three. I don't have the actual slides here. There it is. The first doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of the rapture. Then uh, the second doctrine which we looked at under point four, uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of greater works. Uh, This was not a feature of the Old Testament. The idea that believers are going to do greater works than Messiah, are you kidding me? They spent 2,000 years waiting for Messiah. Uh, Messiah was supposed to show up and do everything and just be awesome and, and give them the kingdom and all these things. So no Old Testament believer would have ever dreamed of being told that greater works than Messiah would he do. That's That's just... Ridiculous. All right. So you understand we're dealing with a a transition here. This upper room discourse is church age information that the disciples of of, uh, on this night are clueless. They're not going to understand any of this tonight. They're not going to understand any of this until the church begins, until the Holy Spirit descends, until they start to get mystery doctrine unveiled that allows them to comprehend what all these things are about, including the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to get to here So under point five then, and I almost, to get redundant here, so the first doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of the rapture. The second doctrine which uniquely applies to the church is the doctrine of greater works. Um, I didn't want to continue that to say the third doctrine which uniquely applies to the, I could, you know. However, really, what we're dealing with is an unfolding of that second doctrine, an unfolding of that greater works, you understand. So, If, in fact, the second doctrine, which uniquely applies to the church, is the doctrine of the greater works, well, then the greater works requires Trinitarian abiding love. And that's what then takes us into verses 15 and following. And so, as we look at it, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this uh, actually is his commandment, that you love one another, even as I have also loved you. So, uh, under this now... I think we got through A and B, and 
We didn't actually see all of B because we had some First John references we haven't seen yet right under B. So we'll pick it up there. But under this, sub-point A, the new commandment for the church is to love one another. The new commandment for the church is to love one another. And so how are we going to do that? Well, love Jesus Christ. This is motivated by integrity love for Jesus Christ. Again, you take John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is motivational for his commandments. His commandment is love. So you see what we're saying here? It's almost, it's, uh, it's, it's redundant in a sense that it's love, love. If you love me, you will keep my commandment, which is also love. Okay, uh, But it's love for Christ motivating our love for one another. That we can prove to be his disciples if we have love for one another. Uh, again, backing up to John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So this is what we're expected to fulfill. This is our new commandment for the church age. This isn't commandment number 11 for Israel. You know, they have their ten commandments. We have a new commandment. And this is a new commandment for a new stewardship that you love one another in an in a organic union, in a body where we are members one of another. We're together. We are members of Christ's body. And we see how this works. Well, what motivates that is our love for Jesus Christ. Uh, otherwise, if we don't maintain that, if we lose our first love, where are we at with this other love? How are we going to love one another when we've lost our love for Christ? You understand? It's going to be gone quicker than anything. Why? Well, because, frankly, I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Why would you guys love me? Why would I love you? Right? If we didn't love Jesus Christ, do you understand what I'm saying? This becomes the motivation for how we can have the unconditional, sacrificial, integrity love one towards another, even when we don't deserve it. See? Because love covers the multitude of sins, and we can be thankful for that. Now, point B then, the uh, agapao and agape, uh, point B, agapao and agape love are particularly concentrated here in chapter 14 and in chapter 15. We're going to see this theme repeated both in this chapter and the next chapter. The concentrations are here in this chapter is verse 15, four times in verse 21, twice in verse 23, 24, 28, and 31. That's your concentration of agapao and agape. All right. You understand the difference between agapao and agape? Agapao is a verb. Agape is a noun. So agapao is A-G-A-P-A-O. And uh, has 143 New Testament uses. The Strong's number is number 25. Agape is the noun. A-G-A-P-E. Agape is the noun. Uh, has 116 uses in the New Testament. Strong's number is number 26. In chapter 15, the concentration comes in verses 9, 10, 12, 13, and 17, multiple times in several of those verses. John 15, 9 has three uses, 10 has two uses, 12 has two uses, as well as single uses in verse 13 and verse 17. And we did look at all those last week, and so you, you understand the, the impact of that. Sometimes I think it's just valuable just to read through the passage over and over and over again. Just remind yourself, all right, chapter 14, I'll start here in 15. I'll go down through verse 31. Well, that's the end of the chapter. Okay. And just work your way through it and have it in your mind every time you hit love, every time you hit love in the process of that. And allow the, allow the, uh, the weight of all that repetition to sink in. Okay. Do you have someone covering nursery today? It's just not you. 
Oh, that's wild. Okay. My mind was freaking out because I saw two people I never, I usually don't see in the same room. Okay, good. All right. Likewise, the concentration in chapter 15. Man, three times in verse 9, twice in verse 10, twice in verse 12, again in verse 13. That's huge. So let's take a look at it. This is my commandment, John 15:12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And by the way, you, you're going to miss this in, uh, in uh, English. Uh, if all you're doing is reading it and looking for these words love here, what do you do with those words friend, those, uh, those words for friends in there as you're reading through there? Okay? Because the words for friends uh, is, is philos. And this brings us from our other kind of love, not just the agape love, but the phileo love as well, the philoi, uh, philos, uh, friendship love that's here as well. So, again, the richness that you get as you read this in the original languages rather than simply limiting it to the, uh, to the English text. But verse 9 says, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Three uses right there in verse 9. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We're going to learn that the secret to the Christian way of life is copying what he did, <laughs> being an imitator of our Savior. He was the prototype for our, our Christian way of life, and we need, to, we need to be imitators of that. All right. Anyway, there's the concentrations there. There'll be an even greater concentration. I say, subpoint one then. A third concentration comes in the Lord's Prayer to God the Father. And then the even greater concentration comes in 1 John. And I believe that's where we left off. Uh, we read, am I correct? We read the John 17 passages on Sunday. And then high priestly prayer. Okay, I mean last Wednesday. All right. A third concentration comes in the Lord's Prayer to God the Father in John 17. Verses 23, 24, and 26. Total of five uses there in those three verses. And then the use of love in 1 John. So join me if you would in 1 John chapter 2 and we'll, uh, we'll get jumping with it. 1 John chapter 2. The believers of Lost Pines Bible Church have had this not too long ago as Pastor Cliff has taken them through 1 John and wrapped that steady up. Now they moved on into Peter and other places, but... I have never taught 1 John verse by verse. Taught it in the Through the Bible series, of course, but never, uh, never on a verse by verse basis. All right. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This, remember, this is very similar. Um, we have ideals. We, we pray for the perfection and then we understand when we fall short, <laughs> God's grace will pick us up. All right. But he prayed for his disciples that they, their faith may not fail you. And then he says, then once you return again, right, strengthen your brothers. So something very similar here. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself, the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so this ties us in exactly with where we are now in John 14 and John 15. Keeping his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
How many believers? You have professing Christians. You have, as a matter of culture, they grew up in a particular church. They grew up in a particular faith tradition. And they, they know all the lingo. They know all the words. They know the, they know the routine. They're comfortable churchgoers. But they don't have the reality of the faith relationship in Jesus Christ. And so uh, they don't truly have the agape love. See, agape love is produced by the Spirit. Agape love is not of us. Agape love comes from God. We love Him because He first loved us. We have love because the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. This is why hope does not disappoint. Um, I believe that there are verses whereby unbelievers are the subject of the verb agape love. Uh, And so I won't go so far as to say that no unbeliever has the capacity to agapao. Uh, but they cannot agapao the way we're commanded to agapao. Not as the Father has loved me can we love one another. No unbeliever can do that. Not to the degree, not in the manner. Even if they can accomplish the verb. Some pastors will tell you that they can't accomplish the verb. I, I've found examples in Scripture where they can, but in any event. All right, so um, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected, completed. Remember, we're, try, we're striving in our growth to reach that perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And uh, here we see that love has to go through the perfection process. And how do you perfect love? Remember, perfect love that casts out all fear. How do I get there? See, well, this book's going to show us how to get there. The one who, uh, so that's verse 5. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Which, again, doesn't use the word love, but you understand that's what it is. Verse 7, beloved. And that's another term altogether, but it's related to agape. It's agapetos. I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment, which is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him. And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, it was new when Jesus gave it to his disciples, and we saw that in John 13. It's new as a sense that it's, it's abiding upon the church, but it's not new in the sense that now we're 50 years into the church age, and uh, John's readers ought to, uh, ought to understand what this is about. All right, so here in chapter 2, we're looking at verse 5, verse 7, verse 10, verse 15. Um, Verse 9 says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So you see the contrast. And this is pretty common. Such as in chapter 1, walking in light versus walking in darkness, uh, confessing our sins to be restored to fellowship. Here it is again. You can say one thing and yet you have hate. So you're in the darkness. But if you love your brother, you abide in the light. There it is. Okay. And who's the one that trips? The, the guy in the light room or the guy in the dark room? Okay? Because he didn't see the stumbling block there. Oh, dummy, turn the light on. You would have seen it. <laughs> All right? And so there it is. Um, from verse 10. Verse 11. Nope. Down to verse 15 for the final uses. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we start to realize that we have, there can be the wrong object for our agape love, that we need to have first things first. We need to be loving God, not loving this world. All right, down to chapter 3 then. Another concentration of uses. 
It just builds. There's more in chapter 3 than there was in chapter 2, and there's a whole lot more in chapter 4 than there was in chapter 3. I think chapter 5 almost forms the aftershocks, (laughs) if you will, because it was just so overwhelming in chapter 4. Chapter 3 then, verse 1, 2, 10, 11, a couple of times in verse 14, 16, 17, 18, 21, 23. It would almost be easier to list the verses that don't have the word love in uh, chapter 3 or in chapter 4. All right. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should would be called the children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, not only is it love, but it's such a love. It is such a love. It's like God so loved the world. God has given us such a love. And the intensity of that, the degree of that, the nature of that ought to be such that it just leaves us with only one conclusion. It leaves us with only one way of thinking. All right. See what such a how great a love the father has bestowed on us. Now, are we trying to say that he didn't love Israel? He didn't love the Gentiles. He didn't love the angels. No, he loved them. Of course, God is love. Uh, He said repeatedly that he loved Israel and they spurned his love and they played the harlot after other gods. Sure, he loved Israel. He loved all kinds of people in the Old Testament, but not to the degree that the bride of Christ is the object of God's love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. He has baptized us into union with the Beloved One. He has baptized us into union with the Son whom He has loved for all eternity. The unbelievable degree and nature of the love that that He sheds abroad in our heart, that He pours out within us, that He produces through the Holy Spirit. That love that He... it's, It's His own love that He supplies to our account. Then verse 2, Beloved, now, again, agapetos, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. This is the staggering thing. We have the greatest portfolio of assets any human beings have ever had in the history of the universe. And it's only a down payment. It's only an earnest money. It's only a deposit. It's a, it's a taste. It's an appetizer. What is it that we're going to have in the full reality of this once the trumpet sounds? It's hard to even fathom. It has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. All right. Down to verse 10. You know what? I don't see the agape in there. Tell you what, here's what we ought to do. Let's just bring it up there. Oh, it's in the Beloved. Okay, there we go. I threw the Agapetos in there. Okay. (laughs) All right. Down to verse 10 then. Uh, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Obvious. Remember, what did he tell them on that night in which he was betrayed? He said, love one another. By this, all men will, you will prove to be my disciples. You will prove to be my disciples. All men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. All right. He told them that on the night in which he was betrayed. Did they understand it at the time? Well, obviously, they've understood it since then, because here's John making this a huge emphasis in his epistle. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother, does not love his brother. Now, all we're getting today is just a sampling so that the overwhelmingness of this hits us. But You've got to understand that this takes work. 
you've got to break this down. You've got to understand what agape is, what agapao is, the sacrificial nature of Christ's love. It is, because I think love is misdefined in our day and age. Love is, 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 is thought of as a, as a sentimentality. It's thought of as an emotion. It's thought of as a, as a, um, an, a, a tolerance of wrongdoing. It's, it's okay. You know, God loves you. and you, know, you can do what you're doing and God, God loves you anyway. And, and, and they, they water it down. They, they actually, I think, adulterate what, what agape love is. Love does not excuse it covers a multitude of sins, but it does not excuse those sins. It does not sanction those sins. And love is not the... I think they, they confuse a lot of uh, philos and storgos. They, they confuse a lot of uh, things and they call it love. And it's, it's anything but. Anything but. You know, when, when Jesus made the whip accords and he drove out the money changers and he flipped over the temple, I mean, flipped the tables in the temple and all that, had he abandoned love at that point? No, not at all. In fact, he was he was fully in the love of God the Father at that point. You're making my father's house a den of thieves, a house of merchandise. It was absolutely a love. You talk about five love languages. <laughs> How about the flip the table over and whip them out of their love language? Okay? It's a love for God the Father and the Word of God that just your stomach gets sick at the phoniness that's out there and the the programs and entertainments and all the stuff they're doing in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of Christ. All right. Verse 10, 11, a couple of uses in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We know love by this, verse 16. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know that you have perfected love when you're willing to lay down your life. Whoever has the world's goods, verse 17, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now this, this doesn't confuse the issues of love, but this does show that if you don't have the greater love, how do you expect to have any other application of love? All right, verse 18, little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed, in truth. Finally, down then to verse 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. That's a thumbnail description of what the Christian way of life is all about. Get to chapter 4. Now, how many are you dealing with? Oh, my goodness. Chapter 4. Where's my... In chapter 4, like I say, it's almost easier just to list the verses that don't have the word love in there. 1, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And most of those have multiple uses. Most of those are multiple uses. Beloved. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So here you've got the noun beloved. You've got the verb love one another. You have the other noun love. 
Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, you get to the point, God is love. You're born into that family. What else would you expect will be expected of you? What is the nature of this family? See, I think it's life, light, and love. What is the nature of our, our, our divine paternity? Of being sons of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you start to expect. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a bowlander, you're just you're gonna be a little bit bent. You're gonna have kind of a an awkward way of looking at the world. You're gonna have a bit of a sarcastic sense of humor. You're gonna learn how to uh tease one another and poke fun at one another. Or uh you're going to learn that pretty quickly. You're just going to have a miserable time of it. Okay. I think it took my sister Mary about 25 years to finally catch on to it. But, you know, we got her there. And that's just the way it is. All right? That's just the way it is. Because that's the family you're born into. And so, uh, what's the family we're born into? By faith in Jesus Christ. Well, it's a family of love. And we are to love one another in the sacrificial God kind of love, not not anything human, not anything human related to this. All right. Let's try to work our way through this. I don't want to spend the whole hour on this, but it's it should just give us a taste and it should just give us the overwhelming impressions that uh, we understand this is a big deal. In fact, go to the Apostle Paul and say it's the only deal, because if you don't have love, forget your spiritual gift, forget your fruit, forget everything you're doing. But the absence of love invalidates it all. So um, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Love is not about what we get. Love is about what we give. Love is about the benefit to others. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you limit your love to those that love you, you're not applying God's kind of love. Well, what value is there in that? Unbelievers do that. Do you love sacrificially? How about loving those who hate you? How about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you? Can you love and benefit somebody else when you get nothing out of it? Well, are, you say they're not worth it. Who cares? Christ is worth it. You're serving Him. You're not serving them. All right, Beloved, if God so loved us, and He did, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, here's the how-to. We're talking about this love needs to be perfected. All right, how's that going to happen? The more you do it, the longer you spend in it, the greater that you, uh, you or the, the, the less frequently that you abandon it. Okay, We're going to deal with this because the whole thing about abiding, how the Father abides in us, how the Son abides in us, the Trinitarian abiding love, that was back to that main point. That the church's greater works require Trinitarian abiding love. We need the Father abiding in us. And He's not going to abide in us if we're not loving His Son. Okay? Now, if you want to think of this as an in-fellowship, out-of-fellowship kind of thing, then that may be fruitful. You know, when does the Holy Spirit indwell us? When does the Holy Spirit fill us? We understand we never lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. But what about the indwelling of the Father? Can we lose that? If we stop loving His Son, okay, let's, uh, let's start to understand when does the Father come and go? When does the Father come and stay? 
And when is that abiding love just so real in our in our uh, in our soul? All right. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And that's the testimony from His Spirit to our human spirit. And so we know. We don't have a doubt in our, in our minds. Uh, okay, down to verse 16 then. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. It's mutual. It's reciprocal. It goes both ways. We abide in God, but God abides in us. And it goes both ways. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. All right? And so it takes this ongoing habit. Make it a habit. We want short accounts. We want to confess as quick as we can. We want to maximize our time, not only in fellowship, but more than that, in fellowship and in love, in this love abiding. All right. No fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You know, this confidence in the day of judgment and this, um, you know, this familiarity. If, if you're rarely there, if, if you're rarely in prayer, if you're rarely in fellowship, if you're rarely face to face with the Father, if you're rarely in love with Jesus Christ, you, you can imagine how difficult your tests become. <laughs> you're faced with a rocky test and you're trying to dust off your prayer life. You're trying to remind yourself, uh, you know, who he is and how he thinks and what he's like. And, and you kind of forget, you, you start to think that maybe you have to bargain a little bit to get some help saying, you know, Lord, I'll serve you. You know, if you bail me out of this, I'll quit skipping church. <laughs> right? Well, if you had the, the intimate love relationship already, unbroken, developed day by day, moment by moment, then any of these tests in life that come along, you take them in stride. You don't have to, you don't have to teach yourself how to pray all over again because you're already praying. You're already in this, in this uh, face-to-face love-abiding relationship. All right. We love because He first loved us. Down there to verse 19. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So when the words are at odds with the deeds, what one reflects the reality? You can say it, but what are you showing and what are you doing? The one who does not love his brother, see, he's a, he's a hater and a liar, just like your father the devil, our adversary. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And that, again, it goes back to the point. Our love for Jesus Christ is our motivational virtue for our love for one another. What Colonel Thiem used to call functional virtue. Remember that? Motivational virtue, functional virtue. The idea of loving God, motivating our love for one another. So that's our avalanche of chapter 4. And then the first few verses, 1 through 3 here of chapter 5, kind of the aftershocks, if you will, of the, the big earthquake that just hit us. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we, are, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. Commandment primarily to love one another. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. And we're not even going to be alone in them either. We're going to be, you know, our, His burden is easy. His yoke is light. We're, we're yoked together with Him. And so there it is. All right. These are our concentrations. Point C. Loving Christ and keeping His commandment requires the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. 
Loving Christ and keeping His commandment requires the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. This takes us into verses 16 and 17 now of John 14. You're not going to love one another if you don't love Christ. But how are you going to love Christ and love one another if you don't have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit? The first fruit of which is what? Love. All right, let me get back to John in my text. John 14. Loving Christ and keeping His commandment requires the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. The idea of an Old Testament believer being commanded to love one another <laughs> without the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you think about what they, what, what would, they were placed under the law, but given no divine enablement to do so. They were placed under the law with a lot of do not commands, thou shalt not. Uh, they were placed under the law with, they did have a love expectation to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love their neighbor as themselves. But to love one another as more important than themselves, to love one another with God's kind of love, was never on any Old Testament believer's radar. And the idea of trying to fulfill a commandment like that without the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, absolutely unthinkable. No way. No way in the world. That's why we said the main point, um, the expectation that this, uh, these greater works require this kind of indwelling, that this new stewardship requires this uh, unique provision All right. John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and, that's presently, and will be in you future. Will be in you future. So notice, this is exactly what follows the, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the, the disciples this night might just be spinning their heads saying, how in the world are we going to do that? <laughs> how in the world are we going to love one another? How in the world are we going to keep your commandments? There is no way in the world. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So relax. <laughs> it won't depend on your human effort. It won't depend on your ability. It won't depend on you making this happen. It will depend upon you letting this happen. It will depend upon you submitting, yielding to the Holy Spirit, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit, learning from the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, loving Christ and keeping His commandment requires the permanent dwelling of God the Holy Spirit. I say without these verses being in here, verse 15 is, is hopeless. How in the world are they going to obey His commands? Now, this is the first of several this is the first of a series of words concerning the Spirit. This episode is going to have a number of promises regarding the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes it seems like the Father is sending the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it seems the Son is sending the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it seems that the Son is asking the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Like we just saw here. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. So let's put these all together. In, verse, in chapter 14, two places. Chapter 15, one place. And chapter 16, one place. There are four different, uh, it's like the Lord keeps encouraging them. He's, he, he's making their heads spin with stuff they can't figure out on this night. But he's saying, relax, Holy Spirit's on the way. 
<laughs> relax. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Relax. It makes no sense to you tonight. The Holy Spirit will make these things clear to you. And so he's got a long, long uh, message. And in fact, there's a lot of things that he wants to say that he can't say. That he's just going to have to let go and, and, and leave unsaid uh, on, this, uh, on this night in which he's betrayed. So we have, uh, in addition to verses 16 and 17, um, and some other things in here where he says he's not leaving them as orphans and so forth, you get down to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So there's our second description. We're told that he's going to request the Father to send him. Now we're told the Father will send him in his name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In other words, everything in red in these chapters here. <laughs> okay, This night in which I'm being betrayed. This night that's filling your heart with sorrow. The Holy Spirit will bring this message to your remembrance. It's going to become a huge part of the church age. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. All right, so um, periodically throughout this section, he's going to be reminding them that this helper is on the way. First time he tells it is in verse 16. Second time he tells it is in verse 26. Third time that he tells it is in chapter 15 in verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So there it is again. Who's sending this thing? <laughs> is it the Son or is it the Father? Is it the Father in the name of the Son? Well, the Son requests it for the Father to send it. The Son sends it from the Father. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. And you will testify also, because you have been with Me from the beginning. And so there's an interaction between what the Spirit is doing and what we're doing. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. What He testifies of, we testify of. What He testifies as to our sonship, we testify as to our sonship. And we cry out, Abba, Father, and so forth. And then the fourth time that He mentions the Holy Spirit, promises the Holy Spirit here, is in chapter 16 and verse 7. And I like what He says here. He says... Um, Uh, 16.5, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? You know, they kind of learned their lesson back in chapter 14. <laughs> and now they're afraid to ask him anything. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They don't like what he's telling them. They don't understand it. What they do understand, they don't want to ask any more about. And uh, they don't like it. It's filling their heart with sorrow. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage. Some messages you need that you may not like them. They may cause sorrow, but that's in the Father's plan too. And it's to your advantage. You need it. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. I will request the Father. He'll send Him in my name. I will send, you know, the Father. To, uh, the, I will have the Father send Him to you. I will send Him to you from the Father. So it's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. They cannot receive the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit while Jesus Christ is still on this earth. 
He has to be ascended. He has to be seated in glory. He has to be seated at the Father's right hand so that together the Father and the Son can then send the Holy Spirit into the church. All right? It can't happen while He's still on this earth. So it's to your advantage. And now, oh man, now what does the church have available? We've got a Father in heaven reigning on the throne. We have His Son, our Lord, at His right hand, our advocate before Him, interceding on our behalf. And now we got the Holy Spirit in the world indwelling each and every one of us. How powerful is this? Nobody ever had this before. All right? This is absolutely new. This is absolutely revolutionary. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so we'll be dealing with that when we get into chapter 16. All right. Loving Christ and keeping His commandment requires the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. This is not an earthly activity. Loving Christ and loving one another is not an earthly activity. It requires Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. It requires the Holy Spirit descended and indwelling the body of Christ here on the earth. You have to be heavenly focused. When you, what happens when you lose your heavenly focus? You quit loving Jesus Christ. You quit loving Jesus Christ, you quit loving one another. You start getting your mind off target, you're, you're looking at earthly stuff. You're looking at earthly stuff, you're looking at your problems. You're looking at your problems and you want to blame somebody for your problems. Okay? I'm starting to sound like a Time Warner commercial. No, um, not Time Warner. Ditch Cable. What's the, what's the commercial? Don't wind up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable. Okay. You have no idea what I'm... You're not watching basketball games is the problem. Okay. <clears throat> There's a long series of commercials. There's one including a daughter who marries an undesirable and you end up with a baby with a dog collar. All right. My daughter likes that commercial. <clears throat> I hope she remembers the point of that commercial. All right. But a long chain of events can lead you where you don't want to be. And you didn't just get there overnight. You got there step by step by step by step by step. And if you would have made a smarter decision here, you would never would have gotten here. Okay? It's like if you give a mouse a cookie. You don't know that one either. You know that one. Okay. It's a little children's book. Man, I'll find an illustration yet. All right. But here's the thing. You stop fixing your attention on the things above. You stop in your thinking the heavenly reality of the church age, the heavenly reality of your priesthood. And the moment you go from heavenly mindedness to earthly mindedness, you just took your eyes off the prize. We're told fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, right? How is it you're going to run with endurance the race that's set before you? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's how you're going to do it. Otherwise, you stop looking at Jesus, you stop looking heavenly, you stop listening to the Holy Spirit, you start looking around, you start listening to your flesh, you start looking at earthly things. How are you going to love the brethren? How are you going to operate in the, in the body of Christ? When someone insults you, how do you, you're not going to respond in love. You're not going to love the brethren there that just insulted you. You're going to insult them back. You're going to react, see, in carnality, in the flesh. Because you abandoned the, the, the Holy Spirit and that love a long time ago, see. That's why I'm, I'm thankful that we, the Lord's been giving us Romans. He's been giving us Corinthians. We've been seeing the attitudes behind the thinking, the thinking behind the actions. It comes back to that attitude of eagerness. All right? Secondly, then, seeing. 
Seeing the invisible becomes a feature of the church. Seeing the invisible becomes a feature of the church. I put seeing in quotes because we do see in spirit and in truth. We just see with our spiritual eyes. And we can perceive the things of the Spirit of God with our living human spirit. We can perceive the Father because we've seen the Son. So seeing the invisible becomes a feature of the church. Again, back to John 14 in this very first promise of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the invisible becomes a feature of the church. In fact, I think it's more than a feature. I think it's a requirement for success anyway. I will ask the Father who will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Why? Why can an unbeliever not receive? They don't have the spiritual eyes to see him. That's right. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. A heart to understand. They're not spiritual. They're natural. The world cannot receive. And I hope, by the way, you relate. Anytime John is dealing with world, he's dealing with cosmos. It's so powerful and overwhelming when the when John is contrasting believers with the cosmos. All right, we have the spirit; the cosmos does not. Uh, our sins are forgiven, not ours only, but also the entire cosmos. First John two two. Every time that uh, John uses cosmos in his Gospels and his epistles, you have a, uh, a powerful testimony here. All right. So the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Abides with you and will be in you. And I find it remarkable. What was the role of the Holy Spirit towards these 12 disciples? Every time they were in the presence of Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, he rested upon Jesus. He dwelt among them. He didn't indwell them. He kept telling them that the Holy Spirit was there for the asking. They never did ask. Finally, after the resurrection, he will breathe on them and force them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then, uh, on the, of course, the day of Pentecost, then they will receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But this, uh, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. There's a present and a future there in that verse as it relates to these 12 or 11, I should say. Judas has already departed. But here, notice again, it does not see him or know him, but you do. You know him. You, quote unquote, see him. Now, you don't visibly see him with your visible eyes, your physical eyes. It's not the it's not the little, you know, squishy orbs in your skull sockets that can view the Holy Spirit. But you do have spiritual eyes being born again. Did you like that? Write that down, would you? Fleshly orbs. What, squishy orbs in your skull sockets. Okay. Yeah, somebody write that down. Email that to me. I'm going to use that again. Um, it's your spiritual eyes. It's your spiritual eyes. They can see the Father. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. They can, see, they can see the Holy Spirit. The world cannot see Him. The world does not know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. The, the viewing of the invisible. The viewing of the invisible. Maybe, maybe you know, we take it for granted because we've been doing it all our lives. We've been doing it all our spiritual lives. 
We've been seeing the invisible ever since we, you know, he brought us to Christ. Why did we see Christ? Because God the Father pierced that veil of darkness and allowed us to see him. In his grace we saw him. In his grace we saw the light. Those aren't just, you know, song lyrics. Those are biblical verses. The veil of darkness was pierced. We saw the light of the gospel, the glory of God, in the face of Christ. How did I see the face of Christ? In September of 1973. With my spiritual eyes. All right. So uh, let's look at some other verses that relate to this. Uh, down to verse, uh, not only verse 17, but verse 19. He says, uh, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me. The cosmos doesn't see Jesus after his ascension. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. We should be seeing Jesus Christ every single day, fixing our eyes on Jesus, setting our attention on the things above. Where? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So, there's a day coming after a little while. How long is a little while? Well, he's crucified the next day. He's raised on the third day. He's ascend- he has 40 days of resurrection ministry. He's ascended on day 40. All right. Holy Spirit descends on day 50, Pentecost. I'd, I'd call that a little while. You will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. We're going to start having not only this visible relationship with Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, but by virtue of that, loving Christ, then the Father himself is going to come in and dwell in us. Okay? And we're going to show you that. Um, Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. See that? Now, when you stop loving Christ, take your eyes off Christ, start hating your brother, start walking in darkness, go the route of carnality, which we do. Does the Father love you at that point? Is he abiding in you? Is he dwelling in you? So here's the, here's the qualification for how to have the love of the Father indwelling you. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Disclose myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We, Father and I together, will come to him and make our abode with him. All right? Anyway, we're going to talk about this. How much of this is conditional? How much of this comes and goes? Is this like the filling of the Holy Spirit? Do we lose this when we're carnal? And then do we regain it when we're back walking in love again? See, because walking in love is commanded. And oftentimes we do, but oftentimes we don't. And I think it's, uh, it's important to be clear on this. Like, I don't think it does anybody any good to be confused related to uh, how, this, how this works, like the Holy Spirit. The indwelling is permanent. You never lose it. The filling comes and goes. Okay? What about the indwelling of the Father? What about the indwelling of the Son? Is it permanent? Or does it come and go? Okay? And I think we want to we wanna evaluate it. I won't ask you to answer it today. Let's answer it together over the next couple of weeks as we work our way through these verses. Because we might be tempted in one passage to say, well, that looks kind of eternal and permanent. And then we might, in another passage, look at it and say, eh, you know, that looks like it's conditional upon my loving Him. So we're going to want to be clear. It means we're going to want to be careful. But seeing the invisible, 16.16 also talks about it. 16.16. A little while and you will no longer see me. 
And again, in a little while, you will see me. So what's happening here? Is Jesus playing peekaboo with these guys? <laughs> you know? A little while, you won't see me. A little while, again, you will see me. And so his disciples were saying to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while, you will not see me. A little while, again, you will see me again, because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he's saying a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. He was driving them up a wall. So, we'll have some fun with that. Over to uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Some reminders of some things we've had not too long ago. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 2 Corinthians 5, 7. When we identify with the maturity of the church age, that um, the idea that the the, the, the transition into the church was only temporary, that it was going to give way to the permanent adult status of the church, that early on you had to combine what we know with prophecy, and you had to combine the in part, in part, and that that was only designed to be a temporary measure to get the church off the ground and to get believers then on a mature basis. Part of 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Okay? So, done away, cease, done away. And we're going to ignore the, the tongues in the middle for right now. We're just going to talk about the, the thing that came first and the came, thing that came third, both of which are called done away. Prophecy is done away. Knowledge is done away. And we're told about the done away. We know in part. We prophesy in part. Okay? The same two items that we were told were done away is the prophecy and the knowledge. And both of those items, were, are, are, we're told, are in part, in part. We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. That is the in part knowing and the in part prophesying. All of that's done away when the perfect comes. And so this is talking about the New Testament being written. This is talking about the canon of Scripture being complete. This is talking about a circumstance where we no longer need to have the apostles and prophets giving us the filling in the gaps between what we know and what we don't know. Because all this mystery doctrine is brand new stuff. And so when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with the childish things. All right? The, the, the little kitty toys are, are done. At some point, you decide you're going to quit playing with your Ninja Turtles because, you know... Your kid wants to play with them. And your kid wants to know why you still have Ninja Turtles in that box in the closet. And you say, oh, um, I was saving those for you. <laughs> Obviously. Why do I still have Ninja Turtles in a box in my closet? All right. So um, it's a part of growing up. All right. The church has to grow up. That the early church, the first generation, the first century was in the childhood development of the church whereby we know in part, we prophesy in part. It's the only way that an Old Testament can be brought into a New Testament perspective. There is no way in the world that, that, a New that believers in Corinth sitting around with a pastor teacher and a bunch of deacons and learning the Word of God could have been studying their Old Testament and had any frame of reference for mystery doctrine and bringing that into a church application. Only the impart-impart combination of what we know and what gets prophesied and how that comes together. 
But that's going to be ended when the when the New Testament's written, and then we combine uh, Old Testament to New Testament, and there we are. Church grows up. More so, verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly. This whole in part, in part thing is like trying to trying to do your homework by looking in the mirror. All right. You're only seeing reflections of it and you're seeing a dim representation of it. You want to be looking right at it. And that face to face relationship is what we have through the, the mind of Christ and the complete canon of Scripture, the entirety of our Bibles. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the Bible's complete face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. And so we have the reality of the church age with a complete canon of Scripture. It's face to face with Jesus Christ. It's knowing fully the whole counsel of God's Word. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We have our spiritual eyes that we walk by. The spiritual eyes that we walk by. Point D. The loss of Jesus' physical presence does not abandon us without personal divine parenting. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. The loss of Jesus' physical presence does not abandon us without personal divine parenting. The abiding Father, Son, and dwelling of the church is a presence far greater than physical presence is capable of. The abiding Father, Son, indwelling of the church. The abiding Father, Son, indwelling of the church is a presence far greater than physical presence is capable of. You know, I have moments that I'm jealous of the Apostle John, sure. Man, he got to walk with Jesus. He got to recline on his breast. Man. I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of things in my life that I'm thankful for and I think of fondly, but I have never reclined on a couch, resting my head back on Jesus' bosom while we partook of Passover and communion and everything else. You think, wow, how intimate is that? The disciple whom Jesus loved. All right, and yet... That, that physical proximity, that physical presence only goes so far. <laughs> you could be separated from that. He can go one direction. You can go another direction. He can go to heaven. You can stay on earth. All right. And you lose the physical proximity. And particularly if, if you have multiple people you're trying to have connected there. You know, you got four kids. Can you and, and you can be with all of them at the same time, but then they start going different directions and you start getting pulled left and right and everywhere else. And how much of you do they get? Now think about Christ. You know, the difference between walking Galilee with 12 disciples versus permanently indwelling the body and bride of Christ today globally, all over this world, in Ukraine and Texas and Philippines and Everywhere, right? All over this world. The Father, Son, abiding. The abiding Father, Son, indwelling of the church. The abiding Father, Son, indwelling of the church is a presence far greater than physical presence is capable of. 
we'll have to pick up on this next uh, next week. Because we're going to see what it means to love one another. We're going to see what it means to for them to make their abode, to make their abode, that is to make themselves at home. You can be somewhere but not be at home there. You know what I'm talking about? You're there, but you, it's it's very formal. It's very awkward. It's very uncomfortable. Everyone's just kind of standing around. You're afraid to touch anything. <laughs> okay. Versus making yourself at home. Kicking off your shoes and sitting down and propping your feet up and fellowshipping, disclosing. That's what we have when we love Jesus Christ. We have that. They, they, the Father and the Son make themselves at home with us in that fellowship. Okay? When we lose that love, when we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose the indwelling. We're still indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And I would say we don't lose the indwelling of the Father and the Son, but we definitely lose the making themselves at home. They no longer make their abode in us. As now all of a sudden is back to this formal again. Now we're standing there. Now we, we want to have the fellowship. Okay, you see the difference? We'll expand on that next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. We rejoice, Father, that we can study a little bit here, a little bit there. Father, we can relax over things that we're trying to decide, Father. This issue on abiding and filling and indwelling, and is it permanent? Can we lose it? Uh, if, we, if we don't lose it, then what happens when we're carnal? Father, how does this work? And uh, I just thank you that we can be relaxed over what we know for certain and what we're hoping to, uh, hoping to gain a conviction of. Father, uh, we know that when... When it's uh, the appropriate time, we will have that conviction. You will bring us to that conviction. In the meantime, Father, we're just simply searching the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And I thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters that are noble-minded to search the Scriptures in this way. I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.